it's an absolute joy to be here. Um, I can honestly say I love this church, which might sound strange because I've never been a member of this church. I don't come consistently to this church. Um, But there's a reason that I love this church. I think you fall in love with the stuff that you consistently pray for, right? Um, Because in prayer, you're drawn close to the Father and you get his heart um, for the stuff that you're praying for. And as we as a church and B and I and our family have been praying for this church, we fall in love with this place. So when we hear the stories of what God's doing in this place, honestly, it brings so such joy and excitement to us. I, I remember being at a prayer meeting probably almost like a year ago, um, and we gathered a few of us here, and, and we were listening to stories of what God had done in this church over decades, and the prayers that had been prayed in this church over decades. And we can probably go further back, right? Sort of like centuries, people have gathered in this place, worshiped God, and sown with their prayers. Prayers of like, Lord, may your kingdom come in this place. Lord, would you stir up salvation in broccoli? Lord, would you bring about justice in this part of London. Um, And this is my sense for you as a family, as a church community, that this is a time to reap. Um, There's a a number of you that have been praying consistently for this church over decades. Um, And I want to say, and I'm sure the the family here would want to say, thank you for your faithfulness. And I believe this is a moment where you're going to see some phenomenal kingdom activity in Brockley and far beyond. Part of the reason is the presence of God has a gravitational pull. I don't know if you could sense it, but as we worshipped, just a beautiful nearness is the language that Chris used, the nearness of the presence of God. When God's presence resides in a place, people will, will hunt it down. You know, they will, they will gravitate towards it. And, and you're seeing that in terms of growth numerically. Um, I was with Ben now last week. We were driving down to a retreat and just hearing some of the stories of people that have come to faith in the last few weeks and months, come back to faith, come alive in their faith. The story of the dance classes, like absolutely rammed only a few weeks after they opened. So much is happening here. You guys should feel really excited. And there's so much more to come, so much more to come. A second thing before we launch into the text um, is that I'm going to tell you what you already know, but you guys have phenomenal leaders, right? Do you agree? Awkward moment. You guys have phenomenal leaders. Let me just remind you of that. Um, I've known Ben and Nell for like over a decade. They are remarkable. Their love for Jesus, their passion for those that don't know Jesus, their hunger for the kingdom of God, it's totally, totally infectious. Um, And a team is emerging around them. Um, And we happen to know a lot of the team really well, Chris and Sarah and Danny and Beth and John and Anna, Carl and Sophie and Chris Lawson-Jones, and then leaders within the congregation. Something phenomenal is happening. Can you feel it? This is a really exciting time for this church family. So that was just a way of saying welcome. Love what's happening here. Love this church. So a couple of weeks ago, John, um, not John, Ben, awkward moment, um, Ben launched this teaching series in John's Gospel, and he, he used this verse, John chapter 20. Some scholars would argue that this was the, the initial ending, the first ending, if you like, of John's Gospel, and then a little bit later, other verses were added, so there's one extra chapter. But this perhaps was the original ending to John's Gospel, and John essentially is, is summarizing, this was the point of me writing this sort of theological retelling of the story of Jesus. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. In other words, the seven signs that we're looking at, the seven miracles that point to the identity of Jesus. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, the promised king of the kingdom of God, that he's the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This was the point of John's gospel. This is why he wrote it down. This is why we're studying it. Because as we find Jesus, all these miracles, they point towards Jesus. As we find Jesus, we find life. 
This is what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10. I have come that you may have life and life in all its fullness. As we study these signs, as we study the identity of Jesus, as it's recorded in John's gospel, we're going to find life. And as we find life, we're going to bring life to Broccoli to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, to our streets. It's so, so exciting. So these are the, the, the seven signs. Um, changing water into wine, that's just a great way to get going, isn't it? Just to establish your ministry. What a, what a great moment that must have been. Healing of the official son, healing of the paralytic in John 5, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, healing the blind man, raising Lazarus from the dead. These are seven signs, but they point towards something. They point towards the identity of Jesus. So throughout John's gospel, he structures this theological retelling of Jesus around these seven miracles and around these seven I am statements. Now, Ben mentioned this as as he opened up the series, but Jesus takes the name for God, Yahweh, used throughout the Old Testament. Yahweh from the Hebrew verb hayah. Everybody say hayah. Brilliant. It's the Hebrew verb to me. It sounds like a karate chop. Haya. Or waving someone across the street. Haya. Sounds a lot like that. Um, it, it literally means I am. Um, so Jesus takes the name for God and on seven different occasions basically says, I am. Like throughout the Old Testament, you've been on this journey of discovering something of the heart, the character, the nature of God. But you've had questions. I am dot, dot, dot. Like fill in the blanks. Show us more of who you are. And Jesus basically says, well, well, I am, I am God, God in human flesh. And I've come to reveal the character, the nature, the heart of God. Um, And he uses these, some of them are very Jewish statements. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the true vine. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And every time he uses these statements, he's saying, I am God, but this is what God is like. And essentially, this is kind of the premise of this series, is that these statements link up with the miracles because the miracles are signs. They're pointing to Jesus. This is who God is and his kingdom is being established in our midst. Um, So today we're going to look at one of them. But essentially, if you read through John's gospel, you're taken on this journey. And this is the journey of how we become like Jesus. This is the journey of how we change the world. It starts with the character and nature of God. Hence, Jesus using these I am statements. So God's being is displayed in God's doing. We know what God is like because we've seen it lived out in the person of Jesus. So God's being overflows into God's doing. And then God's doing, and we're specifically looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that's told in in John's gospel. God's doing um, overflows into our being. Who we are is a result of the cross and the resurrection, right? So Paul will say in his letters, like, you're a new creation now. The old has gone, the new has come. Who we are, we're a new identity in Christ Jesus. And from the overflow of our being, we begin to act in the world. So essentially, the way culture is transformed, the way the kingdom is established, it starts in the heart of God and it literally bleeds out and is displayed in our actions through this journey. So Exodus chapter 3, the passage that, that Ben looked at a couple of weeks ago where God reveals his name, Yahweh, um, to Moses. Notice that that revelation of his name comes about as God says to Moses, I've got a mission for you. Um, it's a really big mission. It's going to terrify you. You were to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the planet right now, and you were to go to him and basically say, it's time for you to set the Israelites free. They've been slaves for 400 years. Enough's enough. You're to set them free so they can worship me in their own land. Now, Moses, here's the mission. 
And he freaks out and basically says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I don't have what it takes. I, I don't have eloquent speech. I'm not qualified for the job. He's asking the question really about his being and his doing in the world and says, I, I haven't got it. I haven't got what it takes. And notice God's response. He doesn't even answer the question that Moses asked, who am I? He says, don't worry about that. Let me tell you what really matters. Let me tell you about who I am. Here's my name, Yahweh. I am. And in this revelation of God's name, it's an invitation to phenomenal intimacy with the God that they've been worshiping. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this, but when God puts a vision on your heart, like a dream, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's way beyond me. This is like terrifying. It's meant to terrify you. That's the point. Because we begin to ask these questions like, who am I? I'm, I'm sure there's someone else who do a better job. You know, do I have what it takes? And God says, That's, we'll get to that question eventually. But the primary question isn't about you, it's about me. I want to tell you who I am. I'm all-powerful. I'm all-knowing. I'm omnipresent. Like, I'm compassionate and slow to anger and I'm rich in love. My mercies are new every morning. I am faithful. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And these promises and, and revelations of the identity of God keep flowing to the point that Moses is like, fine, fine, I'm going. What we need to grab hold of is the identity of God. That's the starting point of mission. So these are the questions that we're looking at in this series. Who is Jesus? What was his mission? Who are we as a result of who he is and what he's done? And what is our mission in the world? And today we're going to look at I am the bread of life and the feeding of the 5,000. So let's just look at this first then. This is Colossians 2 verse 9. And where Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, and he says this about Jesus, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, right? So they've, they've journeyed through the Old Testament, and they're beginning to understand the character and nature of God, but it's been partial revelation, and they're hungry for more. And then Paul begins to write about Jesus, and, and says, well, in Jesus, the fullness of deity was revealed in, in bodily form. So now we fully understand the character and nature of God because it's revealed in Jesus. But if you read through the Old Testament, as they're on this journey of learning more about this God that's liberated them, they begin to use names that point to God's character. So in, in the Old Testament, there's seven compound names, which means two words have been thrown together to form a new word or a new name. So you've got Yahweh my banner, Yahweh my righteousness, Yahweh my shepherd, Psalm 23, Yahweh my healer, right? And seven different compound names. Um, but one of them is Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. Just put your hand in the air if you've ever heard that name before. Um, not many. So let me just unpack it. This is a new name. You're going to love this. Um, some of you might have sang some songs in the 80s with this word in it. Um, others were rescued from that. Anyway, so Yahweh Jireh. Um, essentially, it, it means the Lord will provide. So it, it appears in Genesis 22, I think, for the first time. And the translation is the Lord will provide. But the Hebrew word Jara literally means to see. So Yahweh Jara is best translated as the Lord will see to it. We translate the Lord will provide. The Lord will see to it. Don't you love that? That's the language I use for my kids every so often. When they're getting stressed out, like they want to buy something, some sweets from the shop, but they don't have the right change. And Daddy, I want that, but I don't have enough money. And I'm like, chill out. Daddy will see to it. Daddy, Daddy will see to that. Or we're going to a party and they're, I don't know where we're going. Are we going to get lost on the way? Are we going to get there on time? It's like, chill out. Daddy will see to it. Daddy will see to it. It's one of the greatest privileges of being a dad when you get to provide for the needs of your children. When you get to step in in a moment of anxiety and say, it's all right, Daddy, Daddy will see to it. 
Here's the deal. If we're being really honest, there's some of us, on the the outside, everything looks great, but internally there's some wrestles. There's some serious anxieties. Questions about this moment, maybe financially, career, um, relationships, the list goes on. And there's this anxiety, how's things going to pan out? You know, such stress. And I believe the Father would want to say over you this morning, it's all right, Daddy will see to it. Trust me, Daddy will see to it because this is my name. If it's my name, it's my nature. Yahweh, Jireh, Daddy will see to it. There's others that you've got real anxiety about the future. Like, where are you going to live in six months' time? Career path, like marriage, all, all these big questions. And when it comes to the future, it's like, ah! that's kind of the internal scream. And I believe the Father would want to say to you, it's all right, Daddy will see to it. You can trust me because I am the God who provides Now, this is like an added extra just because I'm a nerd. Um, But the Latin um, verb, provide, um, it's another compound word. Two words have been shoved together. Pro and vide, from which we get video, um, and hence the name provision, um, literally means to see before. Pro, before, vision, to see. And this is what one scholar said. With God, prevision and provision are one and the same thing. Like, don't you love that? Like, six months down the road, you don't know what's coming. Can I just tell you that God does? He can foresee what's around the corner for you. So when it comes to your career and your relationships and where you're gonna live and all these questions, the internal ones, the longings of your heart, and you're like, Lord. He's like, don't worry, I've seen it. I've seen it, daddy will see to it. That which I've seen ahead, I will make provision for. So the Jewish people go on this journey. They discover these seven compound names and they're beginning to understand God's nature. And then you have these big statements, the I am's, and we're gonna look at one of them. So I'm not gonna read it again because it was read beautifully earlier, John 6. Let me just highlight one verse. Um, verse four, the Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when I read scripture, I'm looking for the gold, you know, the, the moments you can apply to your life. And, and the other stuff, you're like, oh, superfluous. Why do I need to know that the Passover festival was near? Let's just crack on to the action, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, but John adds certain bits into his retelling because um, he's wanting to highlight some really important things theologically. So he says the Jewish Passover festival was near because that's going to be important to the story. So the bit that we think superfluous is actually going to be key to us understanding what's to come. So the point John is trying to make is at the moment of this miracle and this statement, I'm the bread of life, everyone's thinking about the Passover, their journey of liberation from Egypt where they'd been slaves for 400 years. So this would be a summary of the Exodus narrative. Um, It starts in Egypt, they've been slaves. um, And then you have this amazing moment where where Moses stands in front of the Red Sea and raises his staff and the waters part and they cross through on dry land. Just imagine the adrenaline pumping through your veins as you can hear the Egyptian army bearing down on you. You're walking through on dry land. You get to the other end and then the waters cave in on the most powerful army on the planet and after 400 years of slavery, you're free. That must have felt great, right? That must have felt great. Um, So this incredible moment of liberation. Then they journey through the wilderness. Then they have a second climactic moment. As Moses ascends Mount Sinai, 
And God gives them the law, the Torah, as a pathway to human flourishing. This is how you're best to understand the Ten Commandments. It's not a list um, to ensure that Christians don't have too much fun. It's basically God saying to his people, here's how you thrive in community. The first three are about safeguarding your relationship with God. The only way to thrive is to be in relationship with the creator God, the source of life. And then God says, here's some other tips, like don't kill people. It's hard for people to flourish when there's murder. And, and don't commit adultery. It's hard for communities to flourish where adultery is rife. And don't kill and don't lie and don't covet your neighbor's possessions. And every so often, honor mom and dad, that's really helpful. Um, and observe the Sabbath. Here's how you're going to thrive. So the Jewish people received the Torah, the Ten Commandments and the Jewish law as an unbelievable gift leading them to life. And then the story continues. They journey through the wilderness and God provides bread from heaven to sustain them until eventually they get to the promised land. This is an amazing story. And every year at the Passover, they celebrate the story as a way of saying God was so generous. He liberated us. But if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that eventually they turn their back on Yahweh God. And as a result of that, they end up in exile in Babylon. I and mean, eventually they come back to Jerusalem, but they're still in a state of semi-exile because the Romans are ruling over them. So they're still crying out, essentially, God, would you send another liberator, one a little bit like Moses, to lead us to this place where we can flourish in our own land in relationship with you, right? So they're celebrating the Passover. That's what it says in John 6. All of this stuff is in the back of their mind. Now, one of the amazing things about the ministry of Jesus, and this is made really clear in Matthew's gospel, is that essentially Jesus arrives on the scene and begins to fulfill their story. So Matthew chapter 2 is the story of Mary and Joseph escaping um, because Herod was out to kill this baby Jesus, and they escaped to Egypt, and then it says they came out of Egypt. So in, in the gospel narrative, Jesus comes out of Egypt. Matthew chapter 3, he passes through the waters of baptism. We read about John the Baptist baptizing him. Then he enters into the wilderness for 40 days, representing the 40 years the Jewish community spent in the wilderness. And then he ascends the mountain to give the Sermon on the Mount. Very good. Sermon on the Mount, where he provides a new pathway to human flourishing. The Torah was a pathway to blessing. And then Jesus basically says, there's a new pathway and it's me, God in human flesh amongst you. Blessed are the poor and blessed are those that mourn and blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness and blessed are the peacemakers. And the list goes on. I'm announcing a blessing over you because I am the new pathway to blessing, the new pathway to human flourishing, if you like. Now, anyone reading these stories at the time or in the years after, they're gonna do the maths hang on a minute, Jesus came out of Egypt, he then went through the waters, into the wilderness, up the mountain to give a new law, if you like, a new pathway to blessing. Oh my goodness, Jesus is fulfilling our story. He's like a second Moses leading a second Exodus, leading us to the kingdom of God. There would have been excitement, right, as this rabbi bursts onto the scene doing all of this stuff. But one of the signs of this Messiah arriving in, in the Jewish mindset was one of the signs would be that essentially manna would fall from heaven once more. So they were looking for that sign because if they saw that sign, they knew that this was the one that they'd been praying for. This was the one that's been promised. So let me read you the words of this rabbi who basically said this, as the first redeemer, which is a reference to Moses, as the first redeemer made the manna to descend, as it is written, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. So the later redeemer, the one they were crying out for, the later redeemer also shall make the manna to descend, as it is written, may there be abundance of corn in the earth. 
So they know the backstory out of Egypt, through the waters, through the wilderness, up the mountain. They're like, could this be the guy? We're looking for the sign. We're looking for the sign. And then suddenly you have this miraculous provision of bread, essentially bread from heaven. Just imagine the excitement. Oh my goodness, this is the one. This is the one that we've been waiting for. Which is why it says in verse 14 of chapter 6, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Like That was the sign. It's happened. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So you've got this kind of story that kind of builds to a climax. And they're like, this is the guy. This is the guy. I don't know if they'd have been as high pitched as that. But essentially excitement. And then Jesus says, yeah... I'm just chilling, I'm going to go now. And just leaves. Like, what? Why? And it's essentially, they recognize that he is the king and the kingdom of God is coming. But they project all their desires of what that kingdom would look like onto Jesus. It's essentially a nationalistic vision, which in their mind looks like Jesus building an army, going into war with Rome, overpowering the empire, establishing his own empire. And, and they try and make him king by force. And Jesus essentially says, no, it's not going to be like that. You, you half get it, but, but you're really missing it. I, I will be crowned, but it's going to be a crown of thorns. I, I will be enthroned, but it's going to be onto a cross. The kingdom of God is coming, but first I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to rise to new life to establish this new creation, the kingdom of God amongst you. Like you think you get it, but you don't fully get it. So he leaves, like exits in that direction. And then you're left in this suspense of like, oh my goodness, like what's happening? And then it's a few verses later, as they've kind of seen this story begin to unfold, that Jesus just drops this unbelievable statement. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You essentially think that all your dreams are going to be fulfilled when you've overpowered Rome and when you're in your own land and and you're the ruling force of the day. No, 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 you don't get it. Like, I am the bread of life. I am the one that will satisfy your deepest, deepest Longings. I am Yahweh amongst you, Jehovah Jireh, the, the bread of life. Daddy will see to it. All your longings, I'll see to it. And I'll see to it through my life, death, and resurrection. Um, let's pause there um, because that's the kind of theology of, of John 6. But I, I want to sort of like not just engage at a sort of cerebral level, let's try and engage with the heart. Like, what does it mean to be human? It, it means that we're beautiful. We're broken and we're infinitely loved by God, right? As you look around, beautiful. But if you look within, we know that we're all broken, but we know that we're infinitely loved by God. Let me just sort of like zoom in on the broken bit. That we know internally there's so many desires that rage within us. Some of them are really good desires to serve God, to love other people, and the list goes on. But we know, don't we, that there's some slightly dysfunctional ones. Um, And we know that some of these desires within us are unfulfilled. And those unfulfilled longings create anxiety. And that anxiety creates restlessness. 
And throughout the ages, different theologians and leaders have tried to articulate this turmoil within, if you like, and how we find rest in that place of anxiety. So let's go back to the 5th century, St. Augustine. He wrote this book called Confessions, and it's a really honest book about someone who came to faith but was acknowledging some of their dysfunctional desires, some of their desires that were misdirected, led them down a path that essentially enslaved them and brought about a huge amount of pain. But when they came to the person of Jesus and realized that he was the bread of life, they experienced rest and peace and wholeness. So he famously said, God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Like We know what that's like, right? When you've got these unfulfilled longings and you're taking them to the workplace, hoping that success in the workplace will heal you. You take them to a relationship, hoping that that relationship will will heal you. You take them left, right and center, hoping that you're going to find fulfillment and you just experience more and more restlessness. And Augustine's basically echoing the words of Jesus saying, you need to take them to God. If you want genuine rest, you need to take them to God. Let's fast forward um, almost a thousand years, just over a thousand years. This is Blaise Pascal who said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Like, it's a heavy statement. Like, there is, there's a vacuum within and we know it. We know it. And we want to hide from that. that, that sense of like, longings that are unfulfilled that drive us and we'll either try and numb it by finding some sort of addiction or we'll try and distract ourselves because that vacuum creates anxiety and Blaise Pascal said look the only way to fill it is to take that longing to the person of Jesus what an incredible statement um C.S. Lewis um, amazing thinker and writer in the 20th century, he wrote this, creatures are born, are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger while there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire while there's such a thing as sex. Women do as well, by the way, but C.S. Lewis didn't go there. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not mean that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and suggest the real thing. This void, you've got a choice what you're going to do with it. You can try and just fill it with just rubbish, or you can take it to Jesus. And C.S. Lewis spends his whole life writing these books, like, you know, the Narnia Chronicles. It's like, all of them are essentially trying to say, take it to Jesus. Aslan's Jesus, take take it to Jesus, take it to Jesus. Because he'd found what Augustine has said. If you want to find rest in your inner being, trust that Jesus is the bread of life. Um, Bernard Levin, a famous columnist um, of the 20th century, described by the Times as the greatest journalist of his generation. Not a Christian guy, but listen to what he says. Countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, together with such non-material blessings, um, such as a happy family, and yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there's a hole inside of them. And however much food and drink they pour into it, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it it aches can you hear the longing it's like I don't want to live like this this thing that's driving me how do I find satisfaction um, a story from the last couple of years then I don't know if anyone's seen the Martin Scorsese film Silence just put your hand in the air if you've seen this film so not many um, I'm going to spoil it for you but there we go um, it's a film about these Portuguese Jesuits that take the gospel to Japan 
a, a context incredibly hostile to the Christian faith. And Andrew Garfield, the actor who plays one of the Jesuits, a method actor, he basically said, look, if I'm going to play one of these Jesuits taking the gospel to Japan, um, I want to understand the mindset, the worldview, the desires that drove these missionaries who are willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. I need to understand the mindset, right? So he basically goes to spiritual um, director and says, look, I'm playing this, you know, person in the film. Um, this guy was a Jesuit. I, I want to understand the exercises that he'd have done day in, day out. And they're based on sort of Ignatian spirituality. It goes back to this guy called Ignatius, where at the end of every day, there'd be a prayer of examine as they would go through their day and basically invite Jesus into that day um, to center themselves on Jesus. And they would read the Bible, the stories of Jesus, and, and they would basically use their imaginations to sort of put themselves into the story because they wanted to experience and encounter to the person of Jesus. So this spiritual director says to Andrew Garfield, fine, we're, I'm going to teach you how to do the exercises. Um, this is not a Christian guy, but he's going through these exercises. And essentially, um, he's interviewed in, in a magazine just before the film comes out about what it was like to engage in these exercises. You won't be able to read this, and I barely can. Um, but let's try. Um, so this is Andrew Garfield being interviewed. When I asked about what stood out in the exercises, he fixed his eyes vaguely on a point in the near distance, wandering off into a place of memory. Then, as if the question had brought him back into the experience itself, he smiled widely and said, what was really easy was falling in love with this person, was falling in love with Jesus Christ. That was the most surprising thing. How cool is that? Non-Christian, doing the exercise and saying the easiest thing was just falling in love with Jesus. He fell silent at the thought of it, clearly moved to emotion. He clutched his chest just below the sternum, somewhere between his gut and his heart. And what he said next came out through bursts of laughter. God, the most remarkable thing was falling in love. How easy it was to fall in love with Jesus. This is a Hollywood actor just doing these exercises. The experience of falling in love with Jesus was most surprising perhaps because Garfield, like many people, came to the exercises asking for something else. What he brought to the exercises was not an explicit desire to know Christ, but rather a painful and persistent sense of his own not-enoughness. Like Ignatius before him, Garfield was a young person looking for his own place in the world. And like many of us, beneath this longing, he carried a deep fear, a fear that he wasn't good enough. The main thing that I wanted to heal, that I brought to Jesus, that I brought to the exercises was this feeling of not enoughness, he said. This feeling of that forever longing for the perfect expression of this thing that's inside each of us. That wound of not enoughness, that wound of feeling like what I have to offer is never enough. Like how profound is that? We are beautiful, we are broken, we are infinitely loved and everybody knows what he's talking about, right? of like that waking up on a not great day and of like, I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. Like this wound of not enoughness. This is what the theologians, the pastors throughout the ages have been saying. Augustine, God, you made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Blaise Pascal, there's a void, a vacuum in each of us. Bernard Levin, C.S. Lewis, the list goes on. They're all trying to say that thing, that wound of not enoughness, it gets healed when you bring it to the person of Jesus. Let me close with one final story then of a guy called Malcolm Muggeridge, another great, great journalist of the last century. Um, 
said this, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. I mean, that's just so true, isn't it? That when you've got like the 10 second summary of how you're doing, if it's like, how are you doing? You know the response. The response is, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, great, thanks. Yeah, fine. Um, the 10 minute version is I'm actually really anxious and there's a sadness and some of my relationships are like pretty messy right now. Like, in other words, there's a, there's a chunk of brokenness in each of us. But the short version is, yeah, I'm great. In other words, we're in denial. <laughs> we're in denial. Feels great, but it doesn't have great effects. Um, so the story of Malcolm Muggridge, he was basically a, a journalist um, in India. Um, and he was writing in his journal at the time, wasn't a Christian, but that he was struggling with lust. Um, and he'd been really honest in his journal. And he was walking down by a riverside in India. And as he looked across the river, he saw a, a lady bathing on the other side of the river. And this lust just began to rise up within him. And he starts walking sort of like close to the riverbed so he can get a better view. And this lust just begins to grow. And he gets into the river and starts kind of wading across because he wants a better sight. And then he starts swimming across the river. And this lust is growing. And it gets to the point where he's like, I, I'm... I want her, I want her, and I'm going to take her by force. So he keeps swimming, he keeps swimming, and he gets so close that the lady hears Malcolm Muggridge, turns round, and when she turns round, he realises that she's leprous, um, that her whole face is disfigured, she has no teeth, and he's so shaken, he stands up and then falls back and basically says to her, you're disgusting, you're disgusting, and then he swims back to the other side of the river. Now, as he's swimming back, um, he's experiencing trauma in his inner being of like, oh my goodness, I, I was about to take her by force. Like, there's something wrong with me. Like, this void within that I'm trying to satisfy these unfulfilled longings by doing something as evil as that. And he, when he gets back home, he, he basically writes a letter to his dad and says, Dad, I need you to know this was what I was about to do. And when she turned around and I saw her, I said to her, you're disgusting. But then I realized I'm disgusting. Like what I was about to do is disgusting. I, I need help. I, I need rescuing. This is essentially what he's writing in this letter to his dad. Um, and essentially that point led him on a journey. And it was only in later life that he found this rest that Augustine was talking about that Pascal was talking about, that C.S. Lewis was talking about, that Andrew Garfield was talking about, that the wound of not enoughness is healed in the person of Jesus. Like, this is the most amazing thing, that Jesus walks onto the scene of first century Judaism where they're experiencing this wound of not enoughness, ruled over by the Romans with this heavy tax system placed upon them, and they're crying out for a redeemer to liberate them, and Jesus does all this stuff, and then he performs the sign, and then he drops the bombshell. Hey, just to let you know, I'm the bread of life. Like, Yahweh Jara you know, that you got this partial understanding of from the Old Testament. Yeah, that's me in human flesh. Daddy will see to it. So I'm going to land there, but want to say over you, whatever the longings are, the pain within, these deep questions, wherever you're taking them, can I just encourage you, encourage you, there is one place to take them that will lead you to life. And that's to the person of Jesus, the one who said, I am the bread of life. Daddy will see to it. Shall we stand? And why don't we 
just open ourselves to the Spirit. If you've never done this before, if you're new, you're visiting, um, why not give this a try? You do whatever you feel comfortable doing, but maybe give this a try if you're up for it. Just hold your hands out in a simple posture of receiving, which is basically a way of saying to God, I'm open to you. I'm not going to resist your presence. I'm open. And for those that know and love Jesus, this is your moment to say to him afresh, I I need you. I've tried other things to satisfy the deep longings, but now I'm coming back to you. Would you fill me with your spirit? And for those of you that are just curious about the person of Jesus, your prayer might be slightly different. It might go something like this. God, I'm not even sure what I think about you, but if you do exist... And if you do satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart, would you come now and fill me with your presence? That's a bold prayer, but I encourage you, why not give it a go? Holy Spirit, would you come and fill this place, these lives? Come and satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Spirit, come.